Hey, Real Talk podcast listeners, you know, the world didn't end when Canada legalized cannabis. Should we do the same with shrooms? Researchers tout the mental health benefits from psilocybin, yet the naturally occurring psychedelic found in more than 200 species of fungi remains outlawed. Dana Larson recently raised eyebrows when he mailed magic mushrooms and cocoa leaves to every MLA in B.C. He tells us why he did it. This is a Relay Project. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. How do you feel about shrooms? Not not like the, the fabulous vegetable that everybody agrees elevates fettuccine Alfredo and takes a ribeye steak to the next level. No, I'm talking about magic mushrooms. I'm talking about psilocybin. I'm, I'm talking about the prohibited but naturally growing, naturally occurring substance that as of yet is illegal in Canada. You've probably seen the story of, of drug activist and entrepreneur Dana Larson who mailed holiday gifts so to speak to all of 87 all of bc's 87 mlas a a gram of mushrooms and a cocoa leaf to every elected provincial representative in british columbia john over the holidays in just a second dana's going to join us to explain why he did it and we want to broaden the conversation you know people talk about mushrooms now like they talked about cannabis 10 years ago, they believe that there are valid reasons why psilocybin should be considered as a treatment for some people experiencing mental health challenges, even that people recreationally that might enjoy mushrooms shouldn't have to wonder whether or not they're going to be arrested for possessing the plant. That conversation in just a second. In a little while, about a half an hour from now, we're going to continue our conversation about whether or not Alberta needs more liquor stores. Premier Danielle Smith has mused about giving the green light to grocery stores, convenience stores that would love to get on the game, selling beer, wine, liquor, what have you. And of course, everybody's got an opinion on that. We're going to take a look at the numbers. We're going to take a look at how Alberta stacks up when it comes to the rest of the country with liquor stores per capita. If you live in Alberta, you already know the answer. You can't throw a rock without hitting a liquor store. Don't throw rocks at liquor stores, kids. And before the end of this episode, we're going to check in with a good friend of ours. As a matter of fact, she's a member of our editorial board. She's an award-winning journalist, Brandy Morin. Yesterday, she was in handcuffs. She was detained by Edmonton police, arrested while reporting on the dismantling of an encampment in Edmonton. Of course, our Real Talk roundtable that occurred just the other day. If you missed it yesterday, that was our episode featuring Edmonton City Councilor Aaron Paquette. We're looking for January 10th's episode of your cruising our archives, as well as Renee Vaujois from the Coalition for Justice and Human Rights. That's the group that's actually taking the city of Edmonton and the Edmonton Police Service to court. So we had the founder of that group and an Edmonton counselor sitting around the table as their legal representatives were sparring in court. How cool is that? Well, just a couple of hours after we talked about a specific encampment, it was being dismantled, and Brandy found herself in police custody. She's going to tell us why it all went down, whether or not she's facing charges right now, and her perspective on this story that she's been covering. 
This episode of Real Talk doesn't happen without the support of Business Career College, our presenting sponsor today. And they've got a pretty simple and direct message to you. And that is that if you're looking for a rewarding and high paying career, but you don't have a university degree, you can get started as an insurance professional with Business Career College. Nothing but opportunity ahead. In fact, in Canada, insurance agents can soon be earning per year, and all you need to do is take an approved course and then pass your licensing exam. BCC offers industry-leading approved courses in life insurance, property and casualty insurance, plus they've got expert instructors that are passionate about helping you launch your new career. And there's a great offer available exclusively for Real Talkers. If you go to businesscareercollege.com and use the promo code REALTALK, that's all one word, REALTALK, they're going to knock 15% off any insurance course. That's businesscareercollege.com. Dana Larson is one of Canada's more well-known drug advocate and and policy activists. He's an entrepreneur, owns and operates the Medicinal Mushroom Dispensary in Vancouver's downtown east side. And he recently raised eyebrows and got a lot of people talking when he sent out 87 care packages, so to speak, with a gram of mushrooms and a cocoa leaf for each of BC's MLAs. He joins us live this morning from Vancouver. Dana, thanks for making time for us, man. Good morning to you. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. I don't know if you'll remember this or not, but you and I last spoke when I was hosting a terrestrial radio show. This was years ago. I think, if I remember correctly, it was shortly after you had mailed like a half ounce or an ounce of pot to to BC's then premier Christy Clark. This isn't the first time that you've put so-called illicit substances into the mail. I uh, know. I also mailed uh, Justin Trudeau and all of his uh, MPs, new MPs, a gram of weed as well, just after they got elected to remind them about their promise to uh, legalize cannabis, which they did follow through on. Uh, and hopefully we'll have some good results from sending out this gram of mushrooms. But, you know, it might result in me getting raided again as well. So we'll see how it all plays out. Yeah, we've got a lot to cover here. So, so number one, let's set the scene. It was what back in November. Uh, my understanding that your location in Vancouver's downtown east side, where where you basically openly sell mushrooms, right? It was raided by police uh, more than once. Uh, we've only got raided once. Uh, we have three locations, right? So okay. it wasn't just our our our, our one in, in the in downtown east side. We have two other ones: one in in Marple and one in uh, Mount, uh, Mount Pleasant. They also got raided. Uh, there's, we're not the only ones selling mushrooms in, in Vancouver. There's over a dozen other dispensaries in the city also selling mushrooms. We're the only one that's ever been raided. Uh, I don't think it was about the mushrooms, actually. I think we got raided over coca leaf, but the police don't tell you specifically what pushed you over the top and got you in line for a raid. So you got to do a little guesswork there. But uh, I think it was the coca leaves that we sell that actually uh, uh, triggered the police. Okay. Cocoa leaves, obviously the leaves of the cocoa plant. I, I don't know too much about making cocaine, but they could be processed in, in some way, shape, or form. Okay. I've munched on cocoa leaves before. As a matter of fact, during one of the most magical weeks of my life, Dana, as we were hiking the Inca Trail to Machu Picchu, and uh, yeah. our, our, our guides told us that that uh, by, by uh, munching, as a matter of fact, you kind of put it in like a dip, you know, like chewing tobacco. You put it in your mouth, and they say it'll, it'll help you with the altitude. But they did warn people even at that time. They said if you're drug tested for work uh you don't want to do this uh what is it about cocoa leaves why, why do people come into your store and pick those up well like you mentioned they, they're used for uh, as a mild stimulant uh, you can make a tea out of them which is about how we sell them but you can also chew them like you're saying you put a couple of grams into your into your cheek and you add a bit of something alkaline you get kind of a numbing effect in your cheek and the alkaloids 
absorb into your body. It's stimulating and, and alerting and kind of similar to coffee and caffeine in some ways, but less jittery and more pleasant, I would say. And uh, we're actually the only place in the Northern Hemisphere where you can walk in and buy coca leaves or coca leaf tea. And sometimes if you're lucky, you could even see a coca plant if you've got one growing there. And this is all part of my effort to dismantle the, the war on drugs. And part of that is by reminding people and teaching people of the real plant origins of these substances and how, uh, you know, coca is ultimately a plant medicine. And in its natural form, it's very uh, harmless and actually quite beneficial with lots of positive uses and millennia of social, cultural, spiritual and medicinal use all across South America. Certainly nothing to be afraid of. You don't seem particularly concerned as somebody who just had their businesses raided by police. Uh, how come? Well, I wasn't. I mean, you're always sort of half expecting to get raided in this kind of uh, business, but I wasn't expecting to get raided either. We've been open over well over three years, open in 2019. So it wasn't like, you know, the police didn't know we were there or anything. They were quite aware of our presence and the city renewed our business license every year for three years, although now they've decided not to renew it, uh, even though we were always called the Coca Leaf Cafe, Medicinal Mushroom Dispensary. They all knew what we were doing there. Uh, but I mean, I'm not, I, I'm concerned the raid was not any fun. It cost us a lot of money. It, it was a big challenge and we're still dealing with the repercussions of that. But, uh, you know, I'm a lighthearted guy and you got to roll with the punches and you got to keep on doing what you're doing. And uh, this is, this is my life's mission and this is what I do. And so a raid here and there is not going to stop me or slow me down. Well, I mean, if anything, it's drawing attention to your cause. I mean, I've seen you've been doing a ton of interviews. Everybody wants to talk to you. Uh, are you charged with anything? How does that work, by the way? How does that play out? No, they, I was held. My lawyer, like, when the raid happened, I was at home, and my law, my staff started calling me and texting me saying, police are here. And I called my lawyer, and he said, don't go down there. If you go down there, they're going to arrest you, and they're going to put conditions on you. And those could include not going back to your shops or other things that can make it hard to do your business. But I said, I can't not go down to my cafe when we're being raided. I got to go and, and see what's going on and help my staff. So I went down there, and sure enough, uh, a few minutes later, the police handcuffed me and took me away for seven hours. Uh, but I was released with no charges and no conditions. So I reopened the next day and went back to work and took us a week or two to get everything back stocked and ready to go again. But we reopened the next day and did everything we could to stay in business and keep defying these laws. Uh, it's a big act of civil disobedience, what we're, what we're doing in the exact same way that cannabis dispensaries were operating in the days before cannabis legalization. Another thing I was also very involved in. So we're using the same tactics and methods now. Yeah, we were we were talking to Mo Amir. I don't know if you know Mo. He hosted This Is Van Color on Check uh, just the other day, and we were having some fun with this story. But but Mo and I were looking back. I went to university in Vancouver in the in the late nineties, uh, and, and I remember obviously as do you clearly, or maybe, maybe you don't, Dana, in a good way. But uh, obviously the cannabis cafes, one after the other after the other, it was it was normal, and it was it was kind of shocking for me as as an import from Alberta to see that. Do you see? Can I call it mushroom culture? Uh, is it following the same path like 20 years later? Or do you think this is a different situation all the way up to the politics of it? Uh, no, I think this is a very similar path that we're on. Uh, and I mean, it's been charted already. And, you know, I opened the third cannabis dispensary in Vancouver back in like 2008 and was very active in encouraging others to open their own dispensaries and to build that movement of shops, not only in Vancouver, but ultimately all across Canada. And it's the same lawyers and a lot of the same people and the same idea. And for me, it's all a continuation of the same movement. You know, we started with cannabis because if you can't get the cannabis laws changed, then you're never going to 
dismantle the rest of the war on drugs. And now we're coming for psychedelics as well. And, you know, ultimately, this is how we're going to dismantle the whole thing. But I think that psychedelics, especially, are, are very similar to cannabis in that they're very difficult to die from. You don't overdose on, on mushrooms or LSD or things like that. They're not going to kill you. There's risks involved, but those risks are more about having an unpleasant experience than about really risking your health. And um, I think most Canadians are ready for the legalization of these things, and we're we're going to move forward on this. Yeah, I mean, I will say, uh, and 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 I think it's important sometimes just for people to plant their flags. And, and I'm a big believer in reducing stigma. I agree that uh, not everybody agrees on everything, but but I have enjoyed mushrooms in past. I also acknowledge that they're not for everybody. Uh, Leslie is watching us in the live chat right now on YouTube, and and she says uh, she says I've always been uh, curious, but I've never tried mushrooms. She said I very much like to try them. She says from what I've learned about them, society. Would would be more loving, more peaceful, and more healthy uh, if they were accessed and used responsibly. Now, I'm not here to convince people to start eating mushrooms, Dana. Uh, that That's certainly not it. And I know for, for some people, it would be the really wrong move. But what do mushrooms do for you? Like, what's your personal reason why they resonate with you so much so that you've opened up a dispensary? And, you know, obviously, this is something that's important to you. Well, I, I've microdosed and I've taken psychedelic mushrooms many times, obviously, and used other psychedelics as well. And I've always found them very pleasant and beneficial. And, you know, we talk to me, we serve a lot of people and people come in all the time and talk about how using mushrooms and other psychedelics. We sell LSD and we sell DMT vape pens as well. We do more than just mushrooms, but the mushrooms are the biggest seller. And um, many people find they help them deal with issues around PTSD and depression and anxiety and some folks use them to help deal with addiction issues and issues with other substances and their relationship with those substances. And so there's a lot of positives. I mean, there are risks, but really the main things are to t- not take them by yourself, to have some other people around you to help guide you a little bit. Uh, Ease make sure into you're focused it. on what you want to be. Ease into it. Hey, that's probably the best advice well, I could well, give my, anybody. Yeah, microdosing is, is becoming very popular. And in some ways, microdosing, I kind of compare it to the CBD uh, of mushrooms, you know, where you're you're getting a lot of the therapeutic benefit, but you're not really getting a huge psychoactive effect. You're taking like if a gram to three grams of most mushroom strains is the typical dose uh, for a psychedelic uh, effect, uh, usually around a tenth of a gram, around 100 milligrams, give or take taken every two or three days can be extremely effective. You get very, you don't get psycho psychedelic effects. You're not tripping, but you're much calmer. You're more relaxed. People who get triggered by things don't get triggered in the same way. You have a really good day. And um, it's, it's also kind of self-limiting. You can't take mushrooms every single day. You get very rapid tolerance. And so you need to give a two or three day break in there. Unlike some other things where you've got to take it every day or you start to have withdrawal, mushrooms are self-limiting. And um, they, they really help a lot of people with a lot of these issues. And, and you find after a while, after several months of taking microdosing, often you just decide, hey, I think I've dealt with those issues. I don't need to take them anymore. You can get a real permanent kind of an effect out of them that's really life-changing for a lot of people. And you don't need to keep taking them all your life. Usually after several months of taking them two or three times a week, you find you've had enough and you know when you don't need them anymore. And so unlike antidepressants, which you've got to take every day consistently for, for years and years, uh, the mushrooms you can kind of take on your own schedule if you want to microdose, and there's uh, you decide eventually you don't want to take it. So it's 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 the, really a wonderful uh, substance, and and should be more available. It's sure it's not for everybody, but uh, 
the idea these are criminalized or something to be afraid of or to be punished because you happen to have a, a gram or two of dried mushrooms in your pocket is really an absurdity, one of the many, many absurdities of the modern uh, drug war. Uh, Dana, you know, obviously a lot of the coverage around this, like some people think it's it's really funny. Some people think that what you did was great because it's pushing this into public conversation. Other people have obviously been extremely critical of this. Uh, Surrey South MLA Eleanor Sturko um, said that what you did was inconsiderate to people like her who are who are living sober. Uh, BC's public safety minister, uh, Mike Farnworth, called it reprehensible and wrong, said that uh, government uh, or elected officials have been advised to to contact law enforcement. What do you say to, to that criticism? Well, I know Mike Farnworth. I mean, I ran against him for the leadership of the NDP back in 2011. And, uh, you know, I would not be surprised if a, if a significant number of folks in, in, all, in the legislature have taken mushrooms in the past, uh, maybe the fairly recent past. And to think it's reprehensible to give somebody a, a coca leaf and a gram of mushrooms or to to get upset and call the police. Like I said, it's it's an absurd reaction. Eleanor Sturko was opening the envelope with rubber gloves on and saying that she was being triggered because she was an alcoholic. But really, mushrooms help a lot of people deal with their alcoholism. And she wasn't a, a mushroom addict, so I don't know why seeing a magic mushroom would, would be triggering to anybody. But she's got a lot of issues. She, she spars with me a lot on Twitter and, and is quite upset about the whole concept of changing the drug laws. But I ask these people, do you, do you support the legalization of cannabis? Do you want to go back to cannabis being illegal? And if you supported that change in the law, or at least if you support it retroactively, that now that it's happened, you don't want to go back, then, then what's holding you back from wanting to change the law on mushrooms, which are very similar to cannabis in many ways, maybe even safer than cannabis in some ways? Uh, I just don't understand. But the whole drug war is, is based in hypocrisy and ignorance. And so seeing these kind of reactions is really just an example of that. And it, it, it does draw out these overreactions, I think, draw out the, the silliness of the whole thing, that you're going to freak out about a mushroom when, you know, there's many more plants growing in schoolyards and playgrounds and public parks across Canada that can be quite toxic. You know, foxgloves can be incredibly toxic. If you eat a few of those, it's going to kill you. But nobody's freaking out if you, if you see one growing somewhere, but you see a catalyst plant or a psychedelic mushroom and people have an absurd reaction. So that's that's part of why you do it is to draw out that reaction and show the absurdity. Interesting to see how cannabis was legalized in Canada. And I think obviously everybody will remember, or most people will, that it was legalized for medicinal purposes first. So people had to go basically get a card. People that weren't, you know, utilizing the so-called gray market would get a card or like a prescription basically uh, from their doctor that would allow them to procure medicinal cannabis. And, and obviously most doctors would write those scripts for whatever reason. I can't sleep. I need a better, uh, you know, appetite, whatever the case was. It wasn't difficult to get the card, but it wasn't totally recreational until it was uh, a short time later. And now, obviously, people can walk into to cannabis. They don't even call them dispensaries, I don't think. Maybe technically they do, but they go to pot shops and pick up pot uh, whenever they need it. You buy it like they buy wine or whiskey or alcohol, whatever, in any shape or form. Um, the impetus there, I think, or, or at least the, 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 uh, the uh, ability that the government had to reduce the stigma centered around identifying medicinal value first. And then they started talking about everything else. I think like opportunity for entrepreneurs and all, everything else that went along with it. Can you see a same path for mushrooms? Like, can, can, you, can you see potentially at some point a government with political will 
recognizing that a lot of psychiatrists and psychologists and researchers are talking about mental health uh, impacts of microdosing, as an example, utilizing psilocybin to treat people with things like depression and maybe moving forward like the government did with cannabis years ago? Well, you're absolutely right that cannabis legalization really came on the backs of, of medical users and on the medicinal aspects of cannabis. And, you know, post-legalization, we've kind of forgotten that. It's, it, it, you, can't, you can't call these shops dispensaries, actually. That's the common parlance. That's the term that we established. But you're not allowed to call them a dispensary. That They can't use that in word in their name because the shops that sell cannabis now, they're not medicinal cannabis shops. They're only recreational shops. They can't talk to you about the medicinal benefits Things like high-potency edibles that are, have got a lot of medicinal value aren't available. And if you want to get medicinal cannabis, you got to get a prescription and order it in the mail, and it's a whole other weird thing, right? Uh, but absolutely, the same path uh, uh, is going to happen with, with mushrooms that we're going to, and we already do have multiple court cases. And with cannabis, it also really wasn't the government at first. The government in Health Canada was in court on the other side of these court cases, saying cannabis has no medicinal value and that we shouldn't allow it, and judges consistently disagreed with them. And the same thing is happening with mushrooms now. There's many patients that have got individual right to use psychedelic mushrooms for medicinal purposes to access them. They don't. There's no real legal supply yet, so they're often having to come to a dispensary like mine to get those mushrooms. But it's the same kind of crack in the door we had with cannabis, and it's getting bigger and bigger, and more judges are recognizing this, and more patients are coming forward to challenge that legally. But the government is still on the side in, in court against this and fighting against it and, and spending their their lawyers, our tax money, challenging the medicinal value of mushrooms. But they absolutely have wonderful medicinal value, as do all the banned plants, by the way, right? Peyote and coca leaves and opium, they also all have wonderful medicinal values as well. But it's going to be the medicinal aspect of, of mushrooms that first creates the opening and then ultimately probably the next liberal prime minister after Trudeau, whoever that is, if that's in like, you know, 10 years from now or something, will be the one to finally change the law. But it's not going to happen anytime soon. We're going to see several more years uh, of mushroom dispensaries proliferating and court challenges before we get to a point uh, like we have now with cannabis where you have shops all over the place. That's still many years away, I think, probably at least 10 years. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't think that it's anybody's top priority. Do you think that the name or like the, the language around it kind of hurts its future on, on a legalization standpoint like you remember we, we talked about this on our show yesterday how it started a lot of people started saying cannabis instead of like weed pot you know whatever marijuana even that the language kind of changed and it, it all of a sudden sounded more reputable like cannabis like dexedrin like tylenol like Smirnoff, you know, I mean, when you start calling them psychedelic mushrooms or shrooms or magic mushrooms, uh, I think it's hard for people on the fence or people that already sort of have their minds made up, people that aren't inclined to munch on shrooms to believe that they should remain illegal because anything that has psychedelic or magic in its title shouldn't be sold in stores, should it? You know the point I'm making? Well, I understand that. Yeah, I think the word psilocybin and psilocybin mushrooms is probably the equivalent of cannabis in terms of the accurate term and the less slangy kind of term that gets used. Uh, you know, I don't really call them magic mushrooms or use that terminology in my shop very much. We call them psilocybin mushrooms or we refer to them by the strain name. But I uh, yeah, I think I think that that's changing the language and the perception and understanding the medicinal value of these things is, is a big part of the, the cultural shift that has to happen before we get to 
ending the, the prohibition, the criminalized prohibition of these substances. Did you get positive feedback from any of the MLAs, Dana? No. I mean, I know some of them personally, and a few of them contacted me without going into the media. And they were, you know, joking about it and friendly about it. I don't want to get anybody in trouble or anything. But uh, but I don't think they there was there was nobody saying they were going to take them or anything like that. And it's only a one gram of mushroom that I sent them. It's not a huge that's enough for a psychedelic experience. But usually people take a little more than a than a single gram. I mean, we'll see if any of them actually take them themselves. I don't know. And a single coca leaf isn't really enough to, to chew on or have a good effect from or anything like that. So I know folks are joking about which MLAs took the mushrooms and what happened. But realistically, it was not about them taking them themselves. It was more about the symbolic action of this. I'm sure most of this will end up either in the hands of the RCMP in a garbage can or maybe in the hands of a a lucky staff member in their constituency office who gets to take them home. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, sure, boss. Uh, I'll, I'll definitely throw them out yeah. for sure, boss. <laughs> yeah, I'll yeah. get rid of these for you. Yeah. Hey, Dana, I see that you have uh, updates for people on your website uh, in the context of the city council hearing around your business license. Uh, you you, you uh, report here that it's been postponed. People can check out your site at mushroomdispensary.com. You don't seem to be overly concerned about selling mushrooms, uh, despite the fact that, you know, technically, they're illegal are you concerned about operating without a business license what happens if the city says it won't renew it well you know our cannabis dispensaries never had a business license since we opened and uh, we've still got two of those open as well but uh but yeah it's a challenge you know we applied for a retail business license we weren't totally clear about exactly what we were retailing but the city we got our license in 2019 and they renewed it every year and they definitely knew what we were doing after we opened uh, and then this year they decided not to renew it. Now we've got some court stuff going on. There's so many different court things because you've got three locations, each with a different situation with their business license, all in court in some way. But the city council hearing, I really thought that the, that the police would let the city do their work before they decided to come in and raid us. You know, we had a hearing originally scheduled in September for one of our locations on Broadway, a uh, 247 West Broadway, about the business license there. And then that hearing got postponed because our lawyer got COVID. So it was supposed to be on December 6th. But on December 5th, the city council canceled it on there and didn't tell us why. And now it's scheduled for March sometime. And this hearing, it's done with a randomly chosen subset of city councillors. So you get three councillors out of the 10, I guess, picked randomly. And depending which ones you get, could have a very big influence. But, um, but it'll be interesting. And I think that it's, we're a hot potato for them because the city of Vancouver and many other cities across Canada we're issuing business licenses for cannabis dispensaries in the years before cannabis was legalized. And they waited till there was over 100 in the city of Vancouver before finally deciding, well, we got to do something about this. And the way to get control was not to send in more cops. It was to issue business licenses and then go after the ones that weren't following the rules. And so for a city that was licensing cannabis dispensaries pre-legalization, what are they going to say about mushroom dispensaries? Are they going to say, no, we're not going to license them. We want to send the police in and raid them. And although we got raided, the Vancouver police are not very interested in going after mushroom shops. It took them three, over three years to come after us. There's over a dozen other ones, probably two dozen in the city by now. None of them are getting raided. It's a huge waste and use of police resources to go after this kind of stuff. So we'll see what happens at this hearing. It could quite possibly get postponed again as the yeah. city councillors put us off indefinitely. But Otherwise, I think it's going to be in mid-March and public won't get to speak. Only our lawyers get to talk. It's a weird kind of a hearing, kind of a kangaroo court, but they will decide whether or not to let us keep our license on, on Broadway, whether to take it away or whether to add conditions. And we're going to be arguing that we hope that they will add conditions and keep us going. If they take it away, 
then we stay in business anyway. I, was I don't think say, any of the other two dozen shops in the city has a business license either. Yeah. As far as I know, none of them have. It's better to have one, and it helps you in court. And just generally, we're not protesting against the idea of business licenses, right? I mean, I would like to have one. There's reasonable rules associated with that. We'll follow them. If there's fees to pay, we'll pay them. We pay all our taxes. We charge DST and all the mushrooms and psychedelics we sell, right? We, we pay our taxes. We want to comply. But if they take the business license away, we don't shut down. We keep doing what we're doing without a license. Dana, can somebody get technically get arrested, like coming into your store, buying something and walking out? Can somebody be arrested on the street in theory? Well, in theory, yeah, it's bizarre because we live in a province that has decriminalized possession of small amounts of cocaine, heroin, fentanyl, methamphetamine, but not mushrooms or psychedelics or things like that. And so that's very odd. I understand why they decriminalize the more dangerous ones, but to not simultaneously decriminalize the safer options, that seems very bizarre, right? That if you got a gram of cocaine and a gram of mushrooms in your pocket, you can be charged over the mushrooms, but not the cocaine. That that's a very odd. I don't want anybody to get charged for possession. Don't get me wrong, but it seems odd they've only decriminalized certain of these substances, and the ones they've decriminalized are the most risky. So, yeah. Although that being said, there's not a lot of charges for possession of mushrooms uh, in Canada or in, in BC. They do happen, I'm sure, but they're not very common. I don't think most police care about that too much. But you know, like cannabis, it also depends where you are. Getting charged, getting stopped with a gram of cannabis pre-legalization in Vancouver was much less likely to get arrested the further north you went in canada and smaller towns possession charges were much more common and so i'm assuming i don't have the numbers for it but i wouldn't be surprised if it's the same with mushrooms that getting caught with a gram of mushrooms in vancouver will get you one attitude getting caught in nunavut or in the far north of british columbia or in smaller towns with the rcmp it's going to be a different situation, and I'm sure some charges do get laid. Yeah, 100%. Uh, Dana, sure appreciate your time. Uh, we always say to our West Coast guests, we appreciate you waking up early for us as well. Let, let me just ask you this in closing. What's what's your, like, elevator pitch? If somebody comes up to you, and they, they've got, like, 30 seconds of your time, and they say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm hearing more and more people talk about decriminalizing all drugs or legalizing all drugs, and for some people, that's an absolute non-starter. I mean, they, they think, they, they see what's happening with the opioid crisis, they, they've maybe know somebody that's overdosed on something heavy uh, and they just think it's an absolutely terrible idea. What, what would you tell them in, you know, 30 to 60 seconds? Usually they say, you want to legalize fentanyl and methamphetamine? And I say, well, fentanyl was really created by prohibition. It's like saying during the heights of alcohol prohibition, do you want to legalize methyl alcohol? That's killing everybody. And you say, no, methyl alcohol was created by alcohol prohibition and fentanyl was created by opium prohibition i want to legalize opium and opium smoking and opium tea and things like that the milder forms of these things coca tea and coca leaf and natural plant medicines to me that that's the first step in this you know we don't have to do not to criminalize caffeine powder to stop people from snorting caffeine powder we just make coffee and coke and coffee beans widely available and so if you want to start caffeine you can i'm convinced if you want to if we legalize coca leaf and cocaine Snorting cocaine would drop drastically. People would be more interested in drinking coca tea. You don't need to criminalize some of these behaviors to, to make them uh, less popular. Good drug laws should make it easier to get a cup of opium tea or a cup of coca tea than it is to get fentanyl and cocaine. And our laws have done the exact opposite. Bad drug laws make it really easy to get fentanyl and really easy to get crack and really hard to get opium and coca tea. And so we got to think about that. The consequence of our drug laws has been to remove the safer, more natural options and to leave only the most concentrated, 
most dangerous forms. In the exact same way that alcohol prohibition eliminated beer and wine and left only the most pure and often contaminated alcohol, the strongest alcohol, the most dangerous alcohol, and the milder ones were left behind. So let's legalize the milder forms, make those available. And that's, I think, the first step to dismantling and untangling all the harms caused by the war on drugs. You can learn more about what Dana Larson does by following on Twitter at Dana Larson or checking out mushroomdispensary.com. Thanks for making time for us, man. I appreciate the conversation. Hey, thanks for having I'm not normally up this early, so I'm probably going to go back to sleep. But <laughs> yeah. thanks for having me on this morning. It was a lot of fun. Do it, buddy. You earned the sleep in. We appreciate it. Uh, there you go, Dana Larson. Uh, interesting to see the conversation in the chat. There's, there's I, I will say, uh, and again, let me reiterate. I saw, I think it was David there that said, you know, I, he said something like, I think mushrooms should be legal, but they're definitely not for everybody. I want to say that again. Mm-hmm. Um, and I appreciate what Dana said. You know, you should, if, if you're going to try mushrooms for the first time, uh, you know, a micro dose, uh, you can get them in pill form or whatever. Again, I'm not endorsing it. But I'm also shooting straight with you and being real about it. Mushrooms are wonderful. Oh, yeah. Uh, But they are illegal, but they're wonderful. Uh, But they are not for everybody. And I know people that have have been in nightmares because they've eaten way too much. Mm. And typically what happens, and it's like funny until it's not funny, Mm -hmm. uh, it's the same with cannabis edibles, is someone that's relatively inexperienced uh, will, or or you don't know sort of the dose that you're getting, especially if it's like your buddy that is famous for his knock-you-out brownie or something like that like you didn't buy them in a store there's no labeling on it um you know the comical type situation that's not funny if you're the person uh is 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 eating a big mouthful and then figuring that it's not working and then eating another mouthful (laughs) and then pretty much as soon as you swallow your second mouthful the first mouthful starts to kick in and then you find yourself in a world of hurt there's nothing worse than a short fuse mushroom uh a trip but or or i guess a bad trip would be but whenever you hear anything you know over the line with anything alcohol drugs cannabis mushrooms it's always when you take too much right Mm -hmm. so when you're saying microdose your first time yeah i think that's good but if you wanted to get the effects and really have an experience i think you would have to like even he said he you know he mailed a gram to each of them but i mean a gram for most people i mean maybe for someone who's who's not you know everybody's different but for most people they're gonna eat two or three three and a half kind of thing right so i i thought <laughs> this guy just the balls on him. He's he's incredible. This guy and pushing for it. And it is silly. Like small amounts of heroin. All these other drugs are, are decriminalized, but you can't have a mushroom in your pocket. Yeah, people people can, can Google about the, that pilot project. It's 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 uh, British Columbia, and there's been uh, recent developments. As a matter of fact, we talked about it uh, last Friday. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you're looking through our archives for that, I've been really bad with dates in 2024. I don't sort of have myself on the calendar yet. That was January 5th. <laughs> yeah. Nothing to do with mushrooms, by the way. Yeah. But January 5th, uh, our roundtable with Linda Steele and Jody Vance, and we briefly talked about BC's pilot project with decriminalizing uh, you know, drugs, so to speak. And, uh, you know, you can send us your insights on that. I like this from Virtuous Sloth in the chat who says, you know, they should start making Coca-Cola with proper cocaine like it originally was. Uh, it's wild. You know, you see this the odd time. You can Google it. You see the odd time. Someone will find like a vintage bottle of cough medication from like 100 sure. years ago. And the stuff they're putting yeah. in cough meds a hundred years ago would knock you on your. I mean, that was kind of the point. I was watching Wolf of Wall Street last night, like Quaaludes. Like it's yeah. amazing that Quaaludes came out. You know, as as it was originally intended to give, well, at the time, in quote air quotes, housewives a chance to rest and relax and go to sleep. But right. you know, somebody just figured out if you stay up. 
20 minutes past the fuse, yeah. you, you go on a pretty nice bender, right? So, yeah, it's it's amazing how things have changed. But can you imagine Dana, just incredible guess. Can you imagine marketing something to housewives in 2024? <laughs> can you imagine? <laughs> Looking back on ads in, like, the 40s and or yeah. the 50s in particular, I think, where it was, like, post-war, everybody was getting their bungalow, everybody was getting their own, like, everybody, all the new stuff, yeah. everybody was getting their own new car, and everybody was getting their own oven, and, and the, the gender angle on marketing all of the products is the wild yeah, just like, absolutely wild and they, like th- this is a pretty strong drug that they tried to market to housewives to, to get them to just sleep to just like yeah. sleep it off it's- do you need to forget who you married and who you're falling asleep beside <laughs> try have you been at home all day taking care of the house and he <laughs> yeah. comes home and has one beer and falls yeah, asleep falls asleep Fuck that guy. Take quaaludes. Uh, let us know what you think about this. Uh, we're, we're going from uh, shrooms to booze in our conversation in just a second. We what also want to let you know, by the way, uh, because of our production schedule, we're not going to be doing an episode uh, tomorrow. We're not doing an episode on January 12th, which means this is an extended length episode. Uh, we've booked it this way. So if you want to split it into two days, you can. It's going to be a, a longer than typical, longer than usual episode of Real Talk. Or you could just binge it all in one sitting. We welcome you to do that. David Clement, in just a second, he's the North American director with the Consumer Choice Center. I uh, want to talk about Alberta's potential plan. Not a plan. Alberta's got a lot of potential plans. We might be green lighting uh, liquor stores, you know, or pardon me, uh, grocery and convenience stores being able to sell liquor. We might uh, go with our own pension plan. We might get rid of the RCMP. We're not sure. Alberta's got a lot of things we might do. We're not quite sure yet, but we're going to talk about whether or not this is a, a good idea. It's a subjective decision. It's a subjective question. Does Alberta need more liquor stores? One person will say, yeah, sure, whatever the market can support. Somebody else will say, is this a joke? Are you kidding me? But we don't take anything for granted. We want to talk it out. This conversation, this episode is happening with the support of our friends at Grand Dog Essentials, quality raw food, and want to let you know that they've got one of their most sought-after items now back in stock, and that is whole herring. That's right, the entire thing. The whole herring is great as a snack or a side to your pup's raw or even kibble bowls. Omega-3 found in fish like herring is really critical in our dog's diet to manage inflammation and to support their immune system. Uh, You can pick up whole herring in either 10 or 30 pound options. It arrives frozen, delivered right to your door if you're in Calgary, Edmonton or Central Alberta. Plus, you can check out the product page on their website. That's granddog.ca if you want to find out more, including instructions on how to feed herring to your pup. Plus, for the month of January, their four-leaf rover and adored beast probiotics are 10% off. You don't need a discount code. You just add them to your cart and save. The cool part about this as well, there's options for cats and dogs. The team at Grand Dog has it all figured out. You can learn more by checking out their website, Dog. If you're feeding the humans in your household, our friends at Friesen Brothers have a great initiative going on through the month of January. They've got these two for $10 specials, and there's a whole bunch of different items. Like you might, maybe you want to pair up cheese and blueberries, whatever it is. I mean, there's a a, a myriad of options. You can see them in store because they're all clearly marked, or you can check out the weekly flyer either online at Friesen.com or in store. They've got 16 locations across the province of Alberta. Mix match throughout the store with the two for ten dollar january special at friesen brothers alberta grown alberta owned and our friends at california closets are here to help you make good on your new year's resolution they know 
that you went on the record to your friends and you told them that you're going to declutter. You told them that you're going to get organized. But what have you done so far about it? Two weeks in, diddly squat. You and I both know it. So do yourself a favor and get online today and visit californiaclosets.ca. That's where you click the button top right-hand corner to request a free consultation. That's where the conversation starts. That's when you can start brainstorming with their specialists, with their expert designers, the best in the business. They've got ideas on how you can convert that home office into a guest room or vice versa. How you can get your laundry room under control. How you can finally get organized so you start loving where you live again. California closets, custom closets, and storage solutions for the whole home. The journey starts at californiaclosets.ca. We uh, initially teed up this conversation a few episodes ago. Does Alberta need more liquor stores? And we got a ton of feedback from people, Mm -hmm. both real talkers that live in our home province of Alberta and from people checking in across the country. And here's the, here's the summary. The summary is, is that folks in Alberta seem to believe, and of course this is the way that it's played out for many, many years, essentially since Ralph Klein, right? Since the privatization, since the free market kind of took over the landscape. Albertans en masse tend to believe anecdotally that the free market should determine whether or not a new liquor store should uh, pop up, whether or not a grocery store should be able to sell wine. But of course, there's things to consider there. As we got into with Shauna Feth, the CEO of the Alberta Chambers of Commerce just a few episodes ago on January 8th. And then the people across the country, Real Talkers in BC and Ontario, one hilarious one in Nova Scotia reached out and said, you guys can't possibly be serious. Alberta has more liquor stores per capita than anywhere else, and it's not even close We want to continue this conversation as the Premier, Danielle Smith, has acknowledged it's something that she's thinking about. Given the green light, loosening the restrictions on regulations around liquor retail. Of course, everybody's wondering what the implications would be. David Clement is the North American Director for the Consumer Choice Center. And we're grateful that he's making himself available for this episode. David, welcome to the show. Thanks for making time for us. Do you you have an immediate and strong opinion clearly stated right out of the gates on whether or not alberta needs more liquor stores i think that's up up to albertans to decide uh the best way to do it would be to open up retail access Uh, i mean quebec does it um quebec has beer and wine and corner stores and dépanneurs and the sky has not fallen um all of the predictions and uh, all of the regular kind of light your hair on fire stuff you expect uh, never happened, uh, has not happened. Um, and just to to highlight the, the discrepancy there, uh, Quebec has, uh, let's say, 25% of the country's population. They have about 47% of alcohol retail stores in the country. Um, so access in Quebec is far greater than anywhere else um, across the country. Uh, and that's mostly because they've expanded wine uh, beer and wine sales to, to corner stores. And so uh, I think it's a big plus um, for consumers. It creates a lot of convenience being able to uh, grocery shop and, and pick up wine uh, or beer or what have you at the same time, rather than having to shuffle around. Um, and so, I mean, anecdotally, I appreciate that as a consumer. Um, and so, yeah, I think I think it's a, it would be a good move. But as you said in the intro, 
uh, a lot of thoughts in Alberta right now. Um, we don't know whether or not this is going to go through, but I think it should. Uh, there is absolutely in my mind no doubt that the convenience factor uh, mm-hmm. would play in big time when people are uh, making up their minds. I mean, I, I think of some of the comments that we've gotten. We, we got dozens. I would say we got hundreds on our social media posts, including TikTok, Instagram, and everything when we asked the question. And everybody's got an opinion on it. But but one in particular, someone said, uh, she said, I would love to be able to pick up wine in the same aisle as I pick up all of my charcuterie uh, offerings. So like, as an example, that's one example. Somebody else would probably love to be able to pick up cold beer wherever they pick up Smokies or Doritos or, or what have yep. you. I mean, there's no doubt that the convenience uh, would, would, of course, increase. If I owned a liquor store uh, or if I had just invested in a fine wine boutique and I was in a strip mall right next to a convenience store and all of a sudden the rules changed and that convenience store could sell all the stuff that I sell and maybe at a discounted price, I'd probably be pretty choked, though. Yeah, I mean, I get their grievances, but their arguments, um, like the guest you had on previously, is really just an argument against any policy change. And uh, because you could make that argument for anything. I mean, oil and gas, people make investments thinking the regulatory climate is going to be X, the policy changes. Um, cannabis legalization, uh, the alcohol industry probably wasn't particularly happy that there was going to be a new entire product class that they were going to have to compete with recreationally should we have not legalized cannabis to benefit alcohol companies i think that's really silly some people actually made that argument um i didn't buy it and obviously ottawa didn't buy it and so i understand their grievances um but it fundamentally that's just an argument against any policy change against liberalizing any market against opening up any market uh and at the end of the day it's at the expense of consumers, whether it be convenience or price or product variety. David, let me let me let me ask you, and I'm, I'm citing here statistics if people want to look it up for themselves at Statista.com. Um, it lists the number of beer, wine and liquor stores in Canada as of December 2022. Uh, so about a year and a bit ago by region. And maybe you can fact check this because I, what you just yeah. said about Quebec, it doesn't seem to line up with this graph. But maybe we can get into that. The point I want to make here. Uh, is that it shows that Ontario has the most beer, wine, and liquor stores in Canada by region with 1,462 stores as of December 22. Um, Alberta is second with 1,330. What's particularly interesting about that is obviously Ontario's population about 14 million, Alberta's population about four and a half. Uh, So you've got, you know, ish, three times as many people in Ontario, but Alberta's got just 130 Mm -hmm. fewer stores, uh, which goes to show what the landscape looks like in Alberta. It says Quebec is fourth with 482 stores, and something tells me that that doesn't line up with the numbers that you're looking at if you say that Quebec has more than anywhere else in the country. Yeah, and in 2018, they had 8,290 alcohol retail outlets, which includes those corner stores. So I think Statista may be using... uh, a metric that is exclusive so stores that only sell right beer wine and or spirits okay um but that's not the conversation that we're having in alberta right now we're talking about convenience stores yes and so actually when you look at it with that larger number that's where the 47 percent comes from and so quebec has a retail density um far better than any other province and nearly 50 percent of all of the retail outlets in the country. And so um, those figures 
are relevant in the conversation of stores that only sell beer, wine, and spirits. But if you open that up and you allow for stores that sell other things like convenience stores and grocery stores, um, it's a totally different question. And Quebec, Quebec far exceeds the rest of the country by, by a pretty large margin. Right. So it kind of reiterates the point that if you can offer a whole bunch of things plus beer, wine, and liquor, you're going to be better mm-hmm. off or more appealing to yeah. consumers than if you only offer beer, wine, and liquor. So no wonder the numbers way down in Quebec. There's changes yeah. happening in Ontario as well. Um, can can yeah. you kind of take us, we don't have to go every province, but I mean, obviously regulations for alcohol and cannabis uh, differ yeah. in every province. And everybody knows in BC, it's it's one way, it's, it's super frustrating in BC, or at least it was back in the day. Uh, if you're looking for a bottle of wine after 9 p.m., it's like, good luck. They treated everybody like yeah. children. <laughs> kind of weird. The government kind of oversees or at least oversaw everything. Same with the LCBO in Ontario, though that's relaxing. Uh, Dougie yep. Ford loves his buck of beer stuff. Dougie Ford loves regulations and loosening them around booze. Alberta loves its free market. I mean, Ralph yep. Klein was big on that, and I think you have to acknowledge uh, I mean, if I was talking to a mental health and addictions counselor, maybe they would say something different. But from a commerce uh, side, and I'll let you I'll, let me just get out of your way here, David. Yeah. But from a commerce side, I think it's been a huge success in Alberta, letting the free market yep. rule. But but what's your assessment sort of across the country? Who's doing it really well in your mind? And and who's sort of the Luddite of the country? Uh, most of the most of the East Coast are far behind. They have just the government run model. Uh, in Ontario, you have this weird prohibition era mix of government run LCBOs and the beer store, which is like technically a private company owned by the big brewers, but they've had a monopoly on the sale of two fours since the end of prohibition. Um, and so that change that's coming in Ontario is going, it should happen in 2025 when that agreement with this, this monstrous oligopoly of private interests uh, loses its exclusive rights. And so that's when Ontario is going to see the shift. Uh, and then as you shift westward, you get more of a mix where you can have some private retail like BC um, and Alberta, um, but it's not necessarily convenience stores like you see in Quebec, which we've obviously already talked about. So where do you see this going in Alberta? You think it's going to happen? I mean, what, is, what, what, what does your gut tell you here? I mean, I hope so. There are going to be a slew of people coming out against this, right? And they will make all sorts of arguments about, well, it's going to increase uh, alcohol-related risks and people are going to buy a lot more alcohol. If we use that Quebec reference, right? They have 47, over 8,000 retail outlets. Quebecers on average, um, just before the pandemic, spent $2 more per month on alcohol. That's it. So it wasn't like opening up the market created a bunch of problematic drinkers. Uh, it's two dollars per more, two dollars more per month, and so it really is a convenience factor. Uh, I think it's a no-brainer, um, and it's to be honest, it's just long overdue when you compare us to many places in Europe where you can go virtually anywhere um, and pick up beer or wine or what have you. Um, and just at the end of the day, treating adults like adults. And this is also another important thing is that in many of these instances, these businesses already sell age restricted goods. So they've established that they have the proper processes in place to ID properly if we're worried about, if we're worried about minors. Um, and ironically, the data from Ontario shows 
that those private retailers, uh, or like those corner stores, let's use them as an example, actually ID in secret shopper cases at a better rate than the government-owned LCBO does. Huh. Uh, and so we get this argument all the time where people are like, well, it's a private company. These are private companies. Like, how do we trust them to ID? And it's like, well, we already trust them to ID on tobacco products, vaping products, gambling, et cetera. Um, and when they've done the secret shopper trials, at least in Ontario, they, they outperform the government stores. Uh, and, and that should be intuitive, I think, for most people in the public health space, but it's not. It should be intuitive because they have a little more skin in the game. If they get caught, let's say you lose your license to sell age-restricted goods, and you're a convenience store owner, it's probably the end, end of your, your business model if you can't sell um, those things anymore. Uh, and, those, and, and having real punishments for selling to minors, I think, is totally appropriate. Um, and so I don't, we will see a lot of nonsense thrown this way uh, from people who don't want this, uh, but there just isn't a lot of evidence to, to suggest that the sky will fall if all of a sudden you can pick up a six pack at your local corner store. The Consumer Choice Center is all about the global glass uh, grassroots. Look at that. I've got bottles on the brain, Johnny. It's the global <laughs> grassroots move. <laughs> kind of grassroots. That could be the headline if we're writing a headline for stories on beer and wine. The global grassroots movement for consumer choice. Uh, that's where David Clement is their North American director. You can learn more about what they do by checking out consumerchoicecenter.org. Thanks for moving the conversation forward, David. We appreciate you sharing your opinion. Thank you very much. Yep, you got it. I see the live chat here. It's it, it's would, would you call it split? Uh, Akat making an interesting point says there's no buck of beer for sale in Ontario. Uh, Doug, you know, Premier Doug is trying his best to put the beer store out of business because they're unionized. Interesting point. This is a campaign promise that the Premier made uh, to Ontarians uh, back in 2018, like six years ago. So he's, 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 they, they initiated it once before, but it didn't happen. Um, we'll see what happens here. Uh, Sylvia says, this is an interesting point from Sylvia. I appreciate you sharing this. She says liquor stores in Alberta have to buy their booze from AGLC. It is not a true free market. That's interesting. I mean, we could really open up a can on this and, and talk about how cannabis is dispersed. Different provinces are different. Like, you know, in, in some Canadian provinces, uh, LPs like licensed producers, growers basically, uh, can ship directly to retail stores. Retail stores can order directly from growers in provinces like Alberta, as an example. It all runs through the AGLC. So if you're a grower, you're hoping that the AGLC is going to pick up your product and then make it available to retailers, and then you hope that it's on the radar of retailers. You can't really advertise. It's, it, it is a flawed system. And all cards on the table, you all know that I'm a cannabis investor and a cannabis entrepreneur. Uh, you all know that I'm one of the owners of the private LP, Joy Botanicals. Please buy it wherever you find it. And uh, so we have uh, some insight here that's going to be based on our investment, that's based on watching the market move. But also, this isn't all about the market. There are other factors at play. And of course, not everything is about the so-called free market. And so if we're missing a point here or if we're not touching on an angle on this conversation, we'd love to hear from you. We welcome your feedback anytime, uh, whether that's a comment. Uh, it could be a comment on our social media channels at Real Talk RJ. You can follow us on TikTok, on Instagram, on Twitter, or you can send us an email anytime as well to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Brandy Morin coming up in one minute. She's going to talk to us about spending time time in police custody yesterday she was arrested she's a journalist she was arrested 
This is the journalist gets arrested story that deserves people's attention in Canada, by the way, this week. Not that other clown in Ontario, but I digress. Brandy Morin in just a second. This episode is happening with the support of Real Talk partners like our friends at Eden Landscaping, who want to let you know that, of course, they're a company, including their team of designers, that has evolved their perspective and their design offerings over time. And so they're paying attention to the trends that are happening this winter in particular and if you're listening to this on the day that we're recording this and if you live where we live you're going to say sorry what no snow no precipitation it's everywhere but on average we've had way less snow this winter than previous years there are implications ecologically environmentally and otherwise and landscape design needs to evolve as climate evolves people are going to be looking toward more hardscapes uh, water capture different techniques and technology for strategy around irrigation or what have you Eden Landscaping is on top of the trends and they have the experience to go along with it. You can start your design journey today. Get the ball rolling so there's shovels in the ground this spring. Contact them by visiting their website, landscapeedmonton.ca. That's Eden Landscaping. Our friends at Complete Care Restoration want to remind you that they are the only Real Talk sponsor that hopes you never call them. They hope they never have to send a team of their talented professionals to your home to repair fire or flood damage. But if you do find yourself in that situation, there's nobody that does a better job of restoring your property and rebuilding your peace of mind. They also have experts that are trained in asbestos, uh, removing that out of homes, black mold, another nightmare that you may encounter. You didn't know it was there until you opened up on a a wall, uh, you know, a project you thought was going to be a small one. All of a sudden you got a bigger problem. Don't handle it yourself. Leave it to the talented professionals at Complete Care Restoration. You'll find them online at completecarerestoration.ca. And before we get to Brandy Morin, a quick shout out to those of you that are looking for a new career opportunity. You've worked in sales. Maybe you've been an office manager. Maybe you've been a job site coordinator or supervisor. Are you an electrician? Are you an engineer? Kubi Renewable Energy is looking for all of those talented professions as they grow their team across Alberta and British Columbia. They do work across Western Canada, proudly based out of Edmonton, Kamloops, Calgary, and Lethbridge. They're helping Canadians advance their sustainable energy goals. And they're doing it with a team that has more fun than anybody else. Nobody installs solar cleaner than Kubi Renewable Energy. If you'd like to join their team, it all starts with a visit to the careers link at kubienergy.ca. If you're a regular listener or a viewer of this show, you know Brandy Morin. She's an award-winning journalist, and she's a member of our editorial board. It grabbed our attention when yesterday she was detained by police while covering the dismantling of a homeless encampment in Edmonton. Now out of police custody, she joins us live. Brandy, thanks for making time for us this morning. What happened yesterday? Tell us how it all went down. Talente, Ryan, thank you for having me. So I was covering the dismantling of the homeless camps that have been happening around the city of Edmonton. Now, I was covering this particular encampment because it's an Indigenous encampment, and I, I tell Indigenous stories. I was It was my second day there. Nobody was expecting the police to come and to do this forcible removal. 
I was uh, doing in-depth interviews. That's what I came back to do. I was in a teepee uh, with uh, a man that's known as like an uncle elder. He's, his name's Roy Cardinal. Some people call him big man. And they were sharing stories in there and they were singing and drumming. And the young Blackfoot man that had been arrested violently the day before and um, punched and his leg injured, uh, you know, had come to visit. And so they were having um, conversation in there. And, and then people came inside and said, the police are outside, they're amassing. I went outside and the police had yellow tape that uh, they were putting up around the premises of this you know, spot of, of land of city property where this encampment is. And a uh, confrontation occurred. A line of police came, talked to Roy Cardinal, who's considered like the leader of this camp. They said that they had an opportunity to leave because the their homes were going to be torn down or they would be forcibly removed. And they said no. They put their eagle feathers up in the air and the police came forward and I was documenting it. I was recording it. The police, you know, jumped on this this man, this elder and chaos was breaking out. And um, an officer came at me and was pushing me and said, you have to leave. You have to, you know, get out of here and go behind the yellow tape. Now, the yellow tape was far from the scene. And these are what, what, what are known as exclusion zone that the RCMP or police create for media. But it often impedes us from being able to document properly and to do our work. I wasn't going behind that line. I asserted my rights as a member of the press. I identified myself as a member of the press. I can't get into too many details uh, of the remainder of the exchange other than to say that I was handcuffed um, and thrown in the back of a paddy wagon, held at downtown police headquarters for five hours, which is insane. My lawyer said somebody with a with no criminal record charged with obstruction at most is held for half an hour. So I was uh, held in charge. Roy Cardinal was arrested and held. And a 21-year-old young girl, non-native, she was there as a supporter. They had threw her down, busted up her lip, and she was also arrested and charged at the time when I was released yesterday evening. Um, Roy Cardinal had not yet been released. So I plan today to go uh, and find him and the others whose belongings were thrown into a dump so that I can continue doing the work that I was there to do, to bring their stories about what they're going through uh, in the, in this situation. So Brandy, to be clear, you, you have been charged. You've been charged with obstruction. Yes. Is that right? Yes. I have to appear in court uh, on February 1st in Edmonton, and I have to go before then to get fingerprinted. Okay, so you, you've you uh, interacted uh, with police before. People are familiar, I think, with your reporting, uh, including in partnership and in collaboration with um, an incredible international uh, award-winning photojournalist, Amber Bracken. You've been on our show before talking about this. You've been out in BC. Refresh my memory. I think it was Ferry Creek that you were out. And, and Wet'suwet'en Territory. And Wet'suwet'en Territory as well. You, you've interacted with RCMP before. You've, you, you've, you've shown... 
uh, that you're not afraid to get into the mix to ensure that stories are witnessed and told. But I'm picking up on something different from you on kind of the vibe you're giving off today. What's different about this one? Oh, man, you know what? I just I'm okay. So honestly, I'm a little bit embarrassed about what happened. I my dad called me up after I got out of jail and said, look, I seen you on the news and I seen them hauling you away. And I went and seen these images of me and like, I look like a criminal, but at the same time, I'm pissed because I was impeded from doing my work. I am not a criminal. I didn't do anything wrong. And I'm just pissed about the situation um, that's, that's unfolding. I mean, we're, we're in treaty six territories. This is my territory. These are many of these displaced native people that are there by the way, about 60% of homeless people on the streets in Edmonton are indigenous people. Um, you know, and it's just absurd, right? The city, um, gives these land acknowledgements and touts reconciliation and, you know, all of that is just a joke to me right now with what they're doing. It was unnecessary to bring these police forces in there with this aggression and this violence to forcibly remove people. And this is not, I, you know, I was there, I was only there a couple of days, but I, I'm talking to other people and journalists that have been covering these camp, uh, you know, displ displacement and this particular camp, this indigenous camp, it's nonviolent. Um, you know, Roy Cardinal is a sober man. He's experienced a lot of trauma. He tries to help people, you know, on the streets. There was a residential school survivor there, a Kukum, living there, almost 70 years old with nowhere to go. And so to me, I looked at all of this and I see it as a symptom, you know, of this mess that we're in, um, you know, all of this fallout from, you know, from, from the residential schools, from, from, from this continued impacts of colonialism, right, on our people. And I was, I'm, I'm more pissed off about the situation, uh, you know, and, and, and being able to do this work. Uh, yeah, I, I'll reference Lauren Boothby as well. I think uh, people that follow, uh, you know, stories in Alberta, Lauren's the, the city hall reporter um, for the Edmonton Journal um, yesterday uh, or on January 7th, rather. Uh, so this was four days ago, tweeting that uh, police had been preventing uh, journalists from accessing encampment removal. She said she's been to two others without issue. But in a circumstance that she reports on January 7th, said reporters had to stand behind a barricade. She says it made it difficult to do my job and see everything that was going on to interview people being evicted um i know that you i don't know if you want to throw stones or not but i want to ask you a question about your and my colleagues and i often say i'm not a journalist i'm a i'm a, I'm a talk host in a way i'm kind of an infotainer um but you're a journalist i mean you're an edward r murrow award-winning journalist what's your assessment of the storytelling what's your assessment of the coverage to this point of what's been happening with the encampments in Edmonton? You know, I think that they've been trying to do the best that they can. And I understand that a lot of these journalists are like um, daily, like daily news uh, journalists. And a lot of the times they're maybe don't have the capacity to do a lot of the in-depth work 
that needs to be done to really understand a lot of the underlying uh, stories and issues. But I think that they've been really trying. I've seen a lot of coverage, you know, from from different uh, media outlets as well as Amber. Amber's been out there, you know, the last month. I think they're really trying to do the best that they can, actually. And I'm I think they're doing a pretty good job. Uh, yeah, we, we, we I, I'll direct people to to Amber Bracken's uh, Instagram. You can follow her at photo Bracken and she has posted some incredible uh, black and white images. And I don't use the word incredible insensitively, Brandy, just very powerful images uh, from the encampments, including a portrait of a woman that she posted just a couple of days ago. I encourage people to follow Amber on Instagram at photo bracken uh, we had an interesting conversation in studio yesterday with uh city councilor aaron paquette obviously an indigenous man and um uh, renee vaujois who's the founder one of the founders of the coalition for justice and human rights pretty interesting to get those two sitting around a table together because they're they're essentially i mean not the two of them individually but their organizations are, are head to head in court right now uh, as the coalition is seeking an injunction against the Edmonton police and the city of Edmonton. Uh, what's your assessment on the right thing to do here? Uh, because I think it's obvious that long-term uh, pop-up illegal encampments are not a long-term sustainable strategy. So mm-hmm. where do you think that this needs to go? Look, I don't have the answers. I just uh, understand what these people are telling me in, you know, how they're being impacted by, you know, having their belongings taken and destroyed. They do not um, feel like comfortable accessing the resources that are there. There is actually so much red tape that they have to go through to even get help to, you know, receive treatment or counseling or housing. You people think that it's easy. It's not easy. You know, there is a long wait list. There are, you know, complicated assessments. And, you know, I I don't believe that the city is has the capacity. They don't even have enough beds to house the people that are displaced in our city. I mean, we have like about 3000 people that are displaced, apparently, the city and the province have now come up with 1700 you know shelter spaces and we we know we've heard that people uh, unhoused people uh, you know have issues with accessing these spaces you know for various reasons i don't know what the answers are i just know that the violence of police in these situations that that's not the answer where are these people going to go they're going to you know, go on to the next curb, onto the next street. They're going to die down in an alleyway rather than finding their body in a tent. You know, picking them up and pushing them out with the force of police is not solving the issue. When it comes to Indigenous people, I can say that our people need to heal. And I don't really think that we're at a place to be able to create what that looks like in these systems and institutions that we have right now. You've had conversations, obviously, with people, and, you, and you, you've tweeted about several of them. I want to let people know they can follow you on Twitter at Songstress28, and they, they can follow uh, your coverage of this and, and other important stories. Um, would you tell us about 
maybe a particularly meaningful conversation you've had with somebody, maybe something somebody said to you that really resonated. Can we humanize this story more than often happens when it's just photos of people en masse with tarps and tents, cops and first responders wearing hazard gear? Can you talk to us about a human interaction that you've had? Yeah, so, you know, Roy Cardo, who's like the uncle, uncle elder of, of this camp that was destroyed yesterday, he's 51 years old. You know, he's he's had a lot of trauma in his life. He's he's a sober man. He doesn't struggle with addictions. He tries to help his comrades on the street. And I witnessed him having conversations. People were coming and going, you know, inside of his teepee, people from the street, his, you know, his friends, people supporting, people visiting. And he was having these conversations with them. And one thing that he was saying, he was saying, you know what? It's going to be over soon. Our people are going to stop hurting soon. Our people have hurt long enough. I know something's going to happen soon. And it's going to be okay. And he was, you know, encouraging them and, and praying. And it was profound because here is a man who is, you know, living in a teepee in minus 30 degree weather. And he is there giving them this insight and trying to instill hope in them. And, and when I saw, you know, these people and, and, and how they took him and the words that he was saying and, 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 and the hope and the inspiration that they were feeling, because I think a lot of people just feel hopeless and they're wandering, you know, and he was saying, you know, we're, it's time for us to rise up. And I, I just, that was really, really powerful to witness. And then to see him jumped on by multiple police and stomped to the ground and taken away with blood in his mouth was you know, was, was pretty, pretty sad. Thank you for sharing that Brandy. Uh, We will continue to uh, watch what happens here and uh, we'll look to you for the insights that uh, you provide so incredibly well, being able to articulate things uh, amid uh, troubling circumstances. Um, You know, this is my privilege talking. I've never been arrested covering a story before. Uh, I've never been held for five hours charged with obstruction. I sure appreciate you making yourself available today. Is there anything you wanted to say to this audience before we thank you for your time and let you get on with your day? Man, no, just, uh, you know what, I'm grateful. I have some lawyers that are supporting me and uh, just uh, follow the work that we're out there doing. I'm heading out now to go back to the city to find out where these people are in the cold. A couple of them went down into the river valley and pitched their tents there. And I'm going to get their stories and bring them to you because that's what I was there to do before I was impeded by police. So please learn about these people, learn about their situations and find out maybe what you can do to help. Brandy Morin uh, is an Edward R. Murrow award-winning journalist. Uh, She is the author of the incredible book, Our Voice of Fire, a memoir of A Warrior Rising. She's a member of the Real Talk editorial board. Brandy, we'll talk to you again soon, my friend. Hi, hi, Ryan. Thank you. You got it. Uh, a lot going on in the chat. We sure appreciate that. Uh, some folks are just sort of like going, what the hell? Uh, some of you have ideas on maybe something. I mean, we talk about the city of Edmonton, but I mean, this is an issue across the country. It's an issue around the world for that matter. But, you know, people are trying to figure out what the right move is here for the city in the short term, in the longer term. 
Some people are saying, why not look at, at rig camp companies? That was Kirk who said, why don't, why don't you order 100-room camps for the winter? I've seen that, that some jurisdictions have done that, have, have ordered basically, you know, here in Alberta, we call them the ATCO trailers, but you know, you know what they are, right? The, the big heated trailers that are temporary camps, oftentimes for workers that are working remotely, that's where they're housed. Um, whether that's a, a, a mid-term or longer-term strategy would remain to be seen, but it would come across as civilized, I think. Uh, it would come across as meaningful action. You may, well, where do we put them? Well, you can figure that out, but at least it's a step in the right direction. You remember the, the he's he's the president of Alberta municipalities now. He's still the mayor of Wetasku and Tyler Gandum, who's yeah. a good friend of this show. He's on often. This was, I think, about a year and a bit ago. Maybe it was longer than that. And and, and Wetaskiwin was doing Wetaskiwin has quite frankly, the highest crime rate in Alberta. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Wetaskiwin grapples with homelessness like like other, you know, like the bigger cities. And they were talking about what they were trying to do down there. And, and, and they had this. This was like the story of like Christ being born in the manger. I mean, they were they literally Johnny's looking at me like, where are you taking this? But they literally had like like livestock shelters. Yeah. Uh, you know, baby Jesus born in the manger. Uh, they had like <laughs> livestock shelters with with like hay. Mm-hmm. And I think they were trying to put up temporary walls. I don't remember exactly how it was going. But I remember Mayor Gandam looking at us and saying, hey, we're, we're trying to, and they were being criticized for it. Like people were saying, this is like the optics of this are brutal, right? Like putting human beings in livestock shelters. And he was going, listen, like we're trying to do something yeah. to get people out of the wind. Like I we're mean, trying to do something. Did you go outside today? I mean, oh, you can't even walk two blocks to our work here today. I mean, somebody commented in the chat today, like Rexall's not being used. Just turn on the heat. Like we're just trying to prevent people from literally freezing to death on the streets so i think tyler gannon like whatever we can do let's just get people inside and and heated and and, yeah. and keep them alive how cool is this tara lynn says oh my gosh i just ordered brandy's book on audible this morning and i totally missed the connection until uh johnny just showed the cover on the screen that's her <laughs> tara lynn. that's her uh it's it's one of the most in, incredible Books Amazing. you'll ever read. I mean, she is just a force of nature. People are talking about libraries, how libraries should be used, uh, how people should be able to go in the in the pedways of the plus fifteens. You know what? It go, the, you know this mm-hmm. sort of like pedestrian overpasses. A lot of people are going to be riding transit. Uh, people experiencing homelessness that don't have other options are going to get on transit. They're not going to have a ticket, uh, but it's a warm place that they can just ride the train from one end of the tracks to the other. They can sit on the bus all day and just stay on the bus because it's heated. And then if they get busted without a ticket, and then maybe you know Johnny, you witnessed something like that yeah. before and, and this is anecdotal again but 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 people are going to do what they can to try to stay alive quite frankly mm-hmm. i don't know if shelters adjust their protocol in in minus 35 and minus 40 but typically at the temporary or the short-term shelters you can get in if you get in mm-hmm. but then at like seven in the morning depending on the individual shelter but you know at seven in the morning it's like everybody out you know and you're on your own until they open the doors again in the evening and mm-hmm. and, and maybe they're adjusting that protocol uh, you know, based on 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 the weather, but but maybe not. I mean, this is easy for for people uh, like us who who have shelter. Yeah, it's easy for people like us that have resources. But this is uh, uh, a horrifically uh, challenging time uh, for people experiencing homelessness, uh, where the temperatures. I mean, literally, you're talking about situations of life or death. How about yeah. Aaron Paquette, the city councilor, yesterday joining us on the show? And Aaron says to us, he says, people will die and we know that Mm -hmm. police sweeping an encampment just a couple of days ago discovered a body in a tent we don't know the circumstances around that but you talk to anybody that works as a first responder or that works in social services in canadian cities and it is uh 
a regular occurrence. I hate to have this come out of my mouth like this, but it is a regular occurrence for them to come across deceased people. Mm -hmm. uh, And of course, because these people have fallen through the cracks, right? Because in many circumstances, their friends or or their family don't even know where they are. Mm -hmm. A lot of times they're not reflected. Their deaths are not reflected in the statistics. They're not on the front page of the newspaper, but it doesn't mean that it's not happening. Yeah. And that's why people are always talking about the timing of these encampments being broken down. But I'm wondering if the timing was because of the weather, right? They obviously saw it was going to be really cold the week after, but I don't know. Maybe the timing was to get people somewhere else because otherwise you would have like those tents aren't warm. There would have been a bunch of dead people on the street regardless. Right. So, but it doesn't seem like people are finding a place to go. And I mentioned about the LRT. It took it yesterday or the day before. And yeah, it's getting a lot fuller and you're seeing some people on there who are clearly just on the LRT, riding the bus, trying to keep warm, trying to stay alive until they get kicked off, right? So. How's this for a real comment? I mean, geez, uh, M8 can on the chat says the cost of treating people after amputations is astronomical. Councillor Paquette said that yesterday as well. He said there will be deaths. He said there will be amputations. Like, mm-hmm. think of what we're talking about. Um, by the way, if you missed Aaron Paquette talking about his uncle Kenny on the show yesterday. How powerful was that story? You can find it. Uh, if you follow our TikTok, Johnny did a really nice job with a tough story. Here is Aaron Paquette talking about his uncle Kenny. In my family, we have a long history of residential schools. And that leaves a lot of scars on families. One of those folks was my uncle Kenny. Uncle Kenny had a lot of trouble with alcohol. It was his way of coping with his pain. I was like, hey, Uncle Kenny. He's like, oh, hey. Tried to give him some money. He wouldn't take it. He said, what you can do is walk with me. That's what he wanted most of all, some companionship. He said, let's go to that tree. And we went to a specific tree. And he said, this is my favorite tree. And he got down and he sat in the roots of it. And I said, why is this your favorite? And he said, because it feels like someone's giving me a hug. He very rapidly just fell asleep. So I took his cup with his change, his Tim Horton's cup, and I tucked it into his jacket, added a 20. That was the last time I saw Uncle Kenny alive. He died in these Edmonton streets in an alley. And when we're talking about encampments, we have to break this up into different kinds of groups. Some people are like my Uncle Kenny. Some people are just down on their luck for a temporary amount of time. Mm -hmm. The smallest group are those who are going to commit crimes. We paint those who are suffering as if they're all criminals, and that's just not the case. Um, Some of you are saying, hey, follow Mark Charrington uh, if you want to know what's going on there as well. You know Mark, uh, affiliated with the... Uh, Coalition for Justice and Human Rights, and Mark was on the show uh, a couple of months ago. Uh, incredible guy. We got a ton of emails from you about this, and I want to get to some of them, but first I wanted to read a text, and I asked my brother if I could, because uh, this was a, a personal, a private text to my phone after our episode yesterday, and uh, and I asked him if, if, if I could share with you, and he agreed. Uh, a quick, uh, you know, sort of a paving the way here for the story, setting the scene. If you don't know, if you're not familiar, my brother, uh, who lives in Vancouver, he's been on the show a couple of times, uh, worked in harm reduction for many years uh, and uh, worked at Insight in, in uh, Vancouver in East Hastings, which was the Canada's first uh, supervised consumption site uh, with millions of uh, people through the years coming through those doors. There has never been a death at Insight. Kyle knows what he's talking about. Kyle's been in the war zone of Canada's opioid crisis. He has firsthand experience on this stuff. And uh, Kyle reached out and said, thanks for your show today. And we started talking and had a, a brotherly exchange. And uh, and then we touched on, uh, Kyle did, uh, my comments, me pointing out that Edmonton police had tweeted some photos out, had released some photos to the media of weapons that they had seized in an encampment. And, and 
it is striking. Uh, you might use the word shocking uh, to see what was confiscated. Samurai swords and machetes and, and butterfly knives and axes, brass knuckles, collapsible batons, an imitation pellet gun or an imitation AK-47 pellet gun. I mean, you get the idea. Right. And we had kind of an interesting conversation on the show about it. Uh, Renee Vauchois, who, who was in studio with us, she said, yeah, but like if you fear for your safety uh, in a site, in an encampment, then, of course, you're going to arm yourself. And, and others said, well, maybe these were collectibles that, that you know, they were going to go sell at a pawn shop. I think that that's less likely, but I digress. I don't know. I wasn't there. Here's what Kyle said about it. He said, by the way, Rye. The police would find the same type and number of weapons if they were authorized and motivated to do a sweep of a neighborhood anywhere. He says, I've got a machete in my closet. He says, the so-called here's what we found display photo is a classic police tactic of increasing perception of danger, riling up the public, thereby obfuscating police racism, classism, ableism, and the use of undue force. He says, both you and Renee said it in the episode. If, if I was out there, I'd have a weapon. He says, when you're vulnerable, a crossbow is comforting. Oh, but how it can all get twisted to the public. Kyle says, I walked and worked among all those weapons, those threats, for years and years. And I was neither assaulted nor generally worried about being assaulted because I saw that the obvious road to take was to get to know the living breathing, hurting person, packing the weapon rather than to be scared by the inanimate object itself. Kyle says very, very, very few vulnerable people are looking to harm a member of the public who is unknown to them, thereby inviting interaction with police and further abuses upon themselves. He says, you know, I could go on and on and on. That from Kyle. I agree 100%. And yesterday when Renee was talking about it, I was like, you know, and I'm the guy to give EPS a thumbs up when I think they're doing good and thumbs down. And that was a thumbs down, putting out that photo. I mean, it's not like they went to a bunch of encampments and this is what we found. They found one golf case with one cache of weapons in one tent. And I was just like, you know, putting up this ominous photo of it all laid out. It just, to me, it was like, see, we're, you know, it look, was, it was look like, what see? we're look what we're rating. Look what we're stopping. But that's right? not the case. You you found one guy or or girl or whoever with with a cache of weapons, and a lot of these like look at these weapons, right? These well, we are like Quinn in our live chat like says modern uh, weapons. Quinn says these are mostly collectible fantasy weapons. Yeah. A couple of which I have hanging on my wall. Says Quinn, samurai and swords. mostly coming from one bag belonging to one person. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't want to run into somebody carrying a samurai Neither sword. Do I. Uh, you know, on East Jasper Avenue downtown yeah. or in a major city anywhere at one in the morning. Uh, but that's not the case. It was so. So this is this is context. This is nuance. This is another perspective. This is broadening the conversation. This is you might call it real talk. We got this from Stunt Doc. Stunt Doc wrote into the show to say so. It's cheaper to house those on the streets than it is to keep them on the streets, and the powers that be are purposefully keeping these people from being housed. The cruelty is the point. I know many old schoolers who believe the sight of the houseless on our streets is an incentive to the rest of us to toe the line, to work harder for less. There are others who see street people as a reminder of their decisions. I want the carbon tax scrapped, they say, so they vote for leaders who they know will ignore or even exacerbate a crisis. They don't want to be reminded that they sacrificed their fellow human beings for a tax cut. We talked about this, homeless uh, plans to end homelessness and property taxes. We talked about it in our episode, uh, if you want to check that out, on January 10th. 
Stunt Dog goes on to say, and then there are those who are simply bereft of any morality, empathy, or conscience. Uh, they need to see people suffering to feel better about themselves. This crisis is not economic. It's psychological. We need to get to the root of why is a society we allow this to happen. That from Stunt Doc. And here's a perspective from Steen. I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. Steen says, uh, I listened to your episode about encampments. I have very mixed feelings about the entire situation. Um, your guest, Rene Vaujois, speaking on behalf of the Human Rights Organization, was clearly passionate. Uh, and for the vast majority of the interview, made sense. Uh, but there were a few minutes, uh, or a few moments rather, that I found myself becoming annoyed <laughs> with the advocacy. There were a few points it seemed she was downplaying when it came to the terrible reality of the encampments. Number one, the claims about the weapons. This is from Steen. Says she admitted that police did not plant the weapons, instead saying it was obvious that the weapons would create safety concerns for workers, police, even occupants of the encampments, uh, but then offered bullshit justification and pointed out that the weapons were not being used for criminal activity. Says Steen, we saw the pictures. There were swords, guns, I can't believe I'm saying this, a battle axe. The fact that she almost justified the weapons bothered me and probably members of the general public as well. Steen says the second part was when you read the email from the fellow who lived close to the encampments. I think it was it Christopher. Pardon me if I get that wrong. Uh, says her only response to his email, which I thought was reasonable and compassionate, was that it's a symptom, uh, which is true. Uh, the email, by the way, in, in, in one sentence was basically a real talker who lives right across the street from one of the encampments saying that they don't have a said that they don't inherently have a problem with this, said that they feel compassion toward the people. It was it was a very reasonable email, but said, you know, we've had bikes stolen out of our parkade since it was set up. We have it all on video. Said there's been fireworks going off in the middle of the night and alleged sexual assault and, and, and went on from there. And, and Renee did say that it's a symptom. And, and Renee's not entirely wrong on that, but let's get back to Steen's email, who says uh, she said nothing about the personal agency and decisions of people living in the encampments. Now, I understand they're in horrific situations, and we should be taking huge steps forward to help, but there's still people who can make choices and should face consequences of their choices like everybody else. What infuriates me about some of the activists in this space is that they don't put any responsibility on the occupants of the encampments. Apparently being homeless is like a get out of jail free card. According to some of these people, if you steal a bike, you steal a bike. You should be held accountable. Uh, she flippantly disregarded uh, the viewer's concerns, which is why people in the general public become frustrated. Steen says this is a huge email, uh, rather a huge issue and deserves to have a robust conversation. And your guest does valuable work. And I do not mean to be harsh by writing in. But I do agree with the listener from a previous episode that said the general public oftentimes does not feel like it's being heard. When activists ignore reality or downplay legitimate concerns from the public, they will always be fighting an uphill battle to gain widespread public support. Thank you for listening. That from Steen, who wrote in to talk at ryanjesperson.com. And I sure appreciate that. Typically, this happens on a Friday, but our final episode this week is a Thursday, uh, which means that we're going to get a little bit early to a weekly tradition presented by our friends at the DQs of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. We know that sometimes you've got to say something with a little extra volume, with a little extra oomph. You want to bring the heat, and we want to hear it. This is your chance to bring us your hot takes it's the Flamethrower, presented by the DQs of Northwest Edmonton 
and Sherwood Park. That's Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road. This one from Alexandra, who says, to the eco-warrior who confronted me at the dog park because I left my vehicle running for 15 minutes in minus 35. Newsflash, I am not an environmental criminal. I do my part to help the planet, but apparently that didn't matter to this eco-officer. I reduce, reuse, and recycle, and I carpool when I can. We had solar panels installed a couple of years ago. I take a reusable glass water bottle to work and I do what I can to keep things out of the landfill but for heaven's sake when it's freezing frigid cold and I'm just trying to keep my dog warm and my car from dying for a few minutes I do not need your lecture I'm not the problem here I'm part of the solution so instead of judging me for a brief idle moment I like what you did there Alexandra says maybe focus on bigger issues or maybe just your own life and let me take care of my furry friend without the guilt trip I'm doing my best and I don't need your unsolicited opinions that from Alexandra what about this one from Larry who heard me talking to Mo Amir the other day on the show about mushrooms and Larry wrote in and I didn't want you to think that we missed it Larry who says thanks a lot Jespo for giving your endorsement for such an array of substances we're talking about mushrooms substances attitudes lifestyles and practices that can easily create devastating results dependencies harm death and a fuck it you only live once attitude that from Larry Larry, practice whatever you practice responsibly. Everything is not for everybody, and I appreciate your opinion. And how about this one from Garth? Garth has been a bit of a regular, and he knows it in Trash Talk and in Flamethrower as well. Garth's name has popped up over the first three years of this show, and he seems to light a fire under the rest of you because you've been responding. And Garth gets what's going on. He says, Jespo, I I just like transforming your esteemed talk show, thanks G-Money, into a tit-for-tat but you must permit me to address the criticism directed at me. Remember this, Garth was talking about net zero and renewables and talking about all the hate that he gets for working in oil and gas and says that he deserves more respect. He says, messages of mine have been featured on Real Talk and it appears that people view me as some sort of oil drunken hillbilly, which is not accurate at all. Garth says, I genuinely believe in and have proudly invested in a solar system for my home. I possess training and extensive experience in high output wind systems. Garth says, so to Cam and Stephen, whose emails about me were read on the show over the past week, I assert that energy companies are not averse to investing in new projects, but bureaucratic red tape and a government that opposes oil and gas impedes new oil projects with measures like Bill C-69, there it is, and financial institutions like HSBC denying capital for oil sands projects. He says the frontier mine fell victim to a hypocritical federal government making investment in oil and gas unattractive under these circumstances. And regarding Las Vegas, because one of you stepped up when Garth said, show me a municipality that can power itself off renewables, and, and then someone wrote in and said Las Vegas is. He says information about how power is generated and what fuels it remains elusive. The only available info is from the same Google search that Stephen copied his entire message from verbatim. In conclusion, says Garth, given my qualifications, my experience, and my skills, I'm confident in thriving and earning well in an honest, renewable energy economy. I'm not afraid that my paychecks will dwindle with oil and gas, but I emphasize that our approach to renewables is metaphorically detrimental, cutting off our nose to spite our face. He says, I'd like to propose another challenge. What about the prime minister and his environment minister converting their writings to 100% renewables 24-7 
until after the next election. That's from Garth, who fired up his flamethrower to talk at ryanjesperson.com. We'd love for you to do the same. It can be about dog park stuff, traffic circle stuff, politics, or the rest of life. And it's all proudly presented by the DQs of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. Stay safe out there, friends. Thanks for doing what you do to support Real Talk. Our next episode is coming up on January 15th. We'll see you then. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson. Executive producer, Josh Dunford. Technical producer, John Hicks. General manager, Katie Cook-Chivers. Account coordinator, Lawrence Durlego. Human Resources, Lena Shepard. Website Design, Mike Johnston. VoiceOver by me, Terry Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Supriya Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Randy Morin, Ann Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Soto, and Nakota Sioux, home to the Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is a relay project. For more, check out ryanjasperson.com.